Well, IBC family, I know I don't necessarily have to tell you to turn to your Bibles because it's going to come on your screen, but just in case it's appropriate, turn with your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 14, and we are going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew together. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, specifically, we're going to be reading in verses 13 through 21. This is going to be a very familiar passage to you. In fact, even as a kid, no doubt you learn of this story. You learn of this miraculous account. And, uh, but I think that when we sit in it, when we take the time to flesh it out, there is much to be gleaned beyond the miracle of feeding a large crowd of people. So read along with me, um, listen along with me, and I'll read our passage for us, and then we'll unpack it together. Starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 14. Now when Jesus heard this, that is the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides the women and children." There's a guy by the name of George Mueller, of whom maybe you've heard of before. Um, he has long since died and is now in the presence of Jesus. But George Mueller has left a lasting impact, a lasting legacy, but not only by what he accomplished in and through his life, but really the way in which he walked and depended upon Jesus Christ, especially in the way he depended upon God to come through and to answer his prayers. You see, George Mueller, he was known throughout of England for establishing many orphan homes for the many children that had no place to go, no parents to call mom and dad, no, no place to stay. And so he had compassion on those kids and he developed orphan, orphanages so that these kids would be loved and he would raise them up to be sent out as God-fearing adults. But what's more impactful about George Mueller is not the fact that he had compassion on kids, but he is most known for the fact that he had, was a man who was renowned for his prayer life. Specifically, He was a man that expected God to answer his prayers. One particular story goes in this way. way. One morning, all the plates and the cups and the bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the pantry and no money to buy food. The children were standing waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, Children, you know we must not be... We know we must be in time for school. 
Then he lifted his hands and he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. Then there was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker, and no sooner had he left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage door. And he would like to give the children his fresh cans of milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. The life and the legacy and the ministry of George Mueller is filled with stories such as these. George Mueller was a man who trusted God to provide for these, orphanage, for these orphans. Now, he was not a rich benefactor himself, but he relied upon the God-prompted compassion and generosity of others to meet the needs of these children. I mean, you think about it. Just put yourself in the, uh, as a fly on the wall in that, in that room. There's a whole room full of kids with empty bowls and empty plates, and George Mueller is praying for the food that does not exist on those plates, fully trusting that God will come through, fully trusting that God will provide as he promises to do. George Mueller was a man of great faith because he was a man who knew his great God. You know, the disciples were also faced with kind of a similar task. And in our passage here this morning, we see that they are faced with a task of feeding 5,000 people, actually 5,000 men, not including the wives and the children. Now, it's interesting to note that when you look at Jesus' ministry and all, how all four Gospels kind of have a, a slightly different vantage point, this miracle is the only miracle that is included in all four Gospels. Every, every Gospel writer has certain, like I said, a different vantage points and unique kind of flavor to it. But this is the one miracle that all four Gospel writers thought it necessary to include. Now, of course, they have their different emphasis. Every Gospel writer has a unique approach for example, the Gospel of John. John, the, the writer, says he compares Jesus as the bread of life and makes the parallel with what Israel did, uh, the, the bread that they ate in the wilderness. And so he makes that parallel that, yeah, though Moses fed the people of Israel, now Jesus feeds his people. But regardless of unique vantage point or unique emphasis, we see that every Gospel writer comes to the same conclusion. I think it's also important to be reminded of the context in which this miracle takes place. Michelle even described it for us a little bit earlier. You see that Jesus, and as Pastor Tom preached on this a couple weeks ago, Jesus had just heard the news that John the Baptist, a friend of his, was martyred. He was brutally martyred at the, at the greed and the immorality of Herod and his family. And after hearing the news of this, no doubt Jesus' heart is kind of sinking in his chest. And so he leaves the crowds of people to a remote area and, and just so he can be alone, no doubt for the purpose of mourning. But the crowd soon discovered where 
Jesus disappeared and they ran around the Sea of Galilee to see him. And Jesus literally steps out of the boat and is met by a large crowd, the same crowd that he just left to be alone with his father. Now, if we were just to stop there for a moment, let me ask you a question. What do you think your response would be? I mean, put yourself in Jesus' sandals here for a moment. What do you think your response would be? You just heard that your, your friend died, and no doubt your heart is heavy. And the last thing you want to do is necessarily be around people. And so you go to a desolate place and you think you're away from everybody only to be met by a large horde of people. What is your response? Is it, all right, another opportunity to serve even though my friend just died? Or would your response be more like, dear God, please give me a break. Just let me mourn and be in silence. But look at what Jesus does. Look how Jesus responds to this large crowd of people. You see, instead of running further away or, or sending them away or, or being annoyed by their presence, we, say, we see instead that Jesus has compassion on them. And he takes the time to heal their sick. As I've kind of already alluded to, I don't know about you, but when I put myself in Jesus' sandals here for a moment, no doubt being around a large crowd of people and giving your time and your energy just after you receive difficult news, or, or in this case, just after you heard that your friend was brutally murdered, a large crowd of people is probably the last place I want to be. It's probably the last thing on our wish list of things to do. It's probably, it's, it's probably not high on our emotional capability. Yet Jesus was not angry. He was not annoyed. He was not put off in any way. No, he loved them. He even loved those who were superficially attached to him. But at this point, it's starting to get late. And we see that people's stomachs are no doubt are beginning to grumble. And so the disciples propose a certain idea. Hey, Jesus, it's getting late. We're way out in the middle of nowhere. It's going to take time to get back to the villages to, to feed the people. We don't have the resources here with us right now. So it's probably good to kind of send them back. And we shouldn't for a moment conclude that the disciples were uh, lacking in compassion or we shouldn't conclude that they were uncaring for the people because they did care. That's why they were proposing what they did. They, they were caring for the needs of people and they were thinking in a very practical way of how they were going to meet the needs of people. <laughs> and then Jesus... Jesus surprises them with a very unexpected response. He says, you feed them. No doubt the disciples at that moment are saying, what? What? How, how in the world are we going to feed such a large group of people? I mean, there's a massive crowd of people. That's impossible, Jesus. Jesus. And yet that is exactly why Jesus said what he said to his disciples. 
You see, Jesus was seeking to help his disciples realize that even though they were limited in their ability and limited in their resources, they had him. Jesus was using this need, he was using this situation as an opportunity to grow their faith. He's using this occasion as a teachable moment to emphasize really two important lessons for them and for us today. These two lessons are such. Lesson number one is that Jesus, that he is the only one who can ultimately meet our needs. The second lesson is Jesus desires to use you to meet the needs of others. Let's break this down here for just a moment here. The first lesson, Jesus is the only one who can ultimately meet our needs. There's actually two implications to this lesson. There's two implications to this this point that I just made here. The first implication is this, that you, that we are inadequate We are unable to ultimately meet the real needs, the perceived needs, the the, the heartfelt needs of people. We are inadequate in and of ourselves. But second implication is Jesus is more than adequate. He is more than sufficient. He is more than able to meet the needs of others. You see, Jesus wanted to teach his disciples that they were inadequate to come through. So when you look at the Gospel of John, for example, in John chapter 6, we see that, the, the, that John describes this, this miracle account in this way. After the disciples understand that there's a large need in front of them and it's getting late, John chapter 6, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? <laughs> and as John goes on to describe He, that is Jesus, said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? By the way, John's account helps us understand more fully what we're working with. 200 denarii was about two-thirds of a, of, our, of a person's annual wages. So imagine you spending two-thirds of your annual income just to feed this very large crowd, and as Philip identifies, that's basically providing an appetizer for these people, but not a sufficient meal to fill their bellies. We also descri- we see that John describes these, they're not just five uh, loaves of bread, but they are barley loaves of bread. And if you understand historically what that's inferring, we understand that barley was kind of the, the, the lowest of low bread. This was not like the organic bread that we buy today. Actually, it's probably more organic then than it is by the bread we buy today. But this is like the wonder bread of that day. It's the cheapest bread you can buy. It's nothing special. You can squish it together and it comes into this little pea form when it's all said and done. And yet Jesus says, bring them to me. You see, Jesus is helping his disciples understand that humanly speaking, they are unable to meet the needs of the people. 
But Jesus redirects their focus by saying, in a sense, don't look at what you don't have, but look at what you do have. You may think that you have very little to offer, or you may think that you have very little means to act on the needs that are in front of you, but Jesus says, you have me. He's helping his disciples understand that when you have me with you, then anything is possible. What's impossible for you is very possible for me. So so view your circumstances, view your situation, view your crisis, view whatever it is through the lens of me being with you. Now that you know that I'm with you, what do you see? You see an impossible situation that God is more than able to accomplish. Again, Jesus already knew what he was going to do but he wanted to teach his disciples an important lesson, and that lesson is this, that apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. But with me, anything is possible. You know, when you think about it, when Moses is standing before Pharaoh saying, let my people go, let God's people go, what did he have? A staff? When little pipsqueak David is standing before this massive guy called Goliath, what did he have? A sling and some stones? What do you have to offer people in their most dire need? Well, as Jesus is helping us understand, in and of herself, you don't have anything. In and of yourself, you don't have much to offer people for the the ultimate needs that they have in life. Maybe on a a very surface, practical sense, you can do some things, but ultimately they're the most deep-seated or deeply rooted need you cannot provide for unless you have Jesus. Because when you have Jesus, anything is possible. I love how Genesis 18, 14 affirms, is anything too hard for the Lord? Recall that God is reminding Abraham, hey, you're going to have a child. Really? I'm 100, my wife's 90. Really? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or as Job affirms in Job chapter 42, I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The fact is, and I'll say it once more, Jesus is teaching his disciples through this miracle account, through this statement, you feed them, he's teaching them that they cannot do anything of eternal value unless they have him. Jesus was calling them to do something that they could not do on their own ability. He was calling them to do something that they could not do on their own strength or from their own wisdom or from their own resources. He wanted them to understand. He wanted them to recognize their inability so that they would fully depend on his ability. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. And you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, IBC family, whoever is joining us right now, please understand this, that God always equips you and that God always empowers you to fulfill as he has called you. God always equips you and he always empowers you as he has called you. So our first question when we see a need or a situation in front of us is, how in the world do I do this? That's not the first question we should be asking. No, the the first detail that you and I need to recognize or be reminded of in in the moment or in a situation is not how do I do this, But who is the one calling me to do this? Who is the one who is with me in doing this? After all, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. So we, in and of ourselves, are inadequate to ultimately meet the needs of others. But secondly, brothers and sisters, Jesus is more than adequate. He is more than able. He is more than sufficient to meet our needs. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 6, just following this miracle account in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The point that Jesus is trying to emphasize here is that Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy. He's the only one who can truly meet our needs. I think it's important that we pay close attention to what Jesus is really focusing in on here. David Platt really said it well when he said this, Jesus isn't simply the one who gives us what satisfies but he is the one who satisfies. That's an important distinction because our perspective is not what does God do for me necessarily, but the fact that God is with me. In other words, what I ultimately need in any and every situation or circumstance in my life is not necessarily what God does, but the fact that he is with me, the fact that I get God. You see, the abundant life, brothers and sisters, is not attained because of what God gives you necessarily, but because you gain God himself. We just sang about that. God is with us. Paul speaks to this. What is the mystery of Christ? The fact that he no longer resides in a temple, but now we are that temple. That he takes, he takes residence in our life. Wrap your minds around that just for a moment. You see, the Christian life is not joy-filled because Jesus gives us what we want. No, the Christian life is joy-filled because we have Jesus. Perhaps we could even understand it in these terms. When you think about your pending death, which will happen to all of us, and obviously as Christians, What awaits us is not just death isn't the final say, but we await a a place called heaven, right? 
And being a pastor, having done many memorials, I hear all kinds of things about, oh, when I go to heaven, I can't wait to be reunited with my loved ones. In other words, we almost view heaven as a family reunion. But often what is absent from our conversation, what is absent from our perspective is, no, heaven is God. Heaven is amazing because God is there. Heaven is glorious because God is there. It's not just pearly gates and streets of gold. It's not just a, a bunch of crowns on my head. It's not just the fact that I can be reunited with my biological family members. No, heaven is glorious because God is there. And if that doesn't excite us, then it's possible we don't understand our salvation. Matthew 6.33, Jesus exhorts us in this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all your needs, all the practical things. God knows what you need even before you have him. All these things will be added to you. I love this account of George Mueller when he's praying for food, but God had already been working in the baker's heart to start preparing the food that these children were about to eat later that morning. God already knows what you need. So seek first God God and his kingdom and his righteousness and he promises to, to give you what you need. So the question I have for you, IBC family, is this. Have you come to Jesus with your needs? Do you see Jesus as more than sufficient to meet your needs? Do you see Jesus as the only one who can truly satisfy and complete you? James Boyce says it this way. He says, there is no pit so deep or hole so black that Jesus cannot fill it or bring light to it. He will satisfy you if you go to him. You know, brothers and sisters, when I reflect on what Jesus is, the fact that Jesus is the only one who can ultimately meet our deeply rooted needs, I cannot help but connect how important this truth is in our current social unrest. As if quarantine wasn't enough to make people restless and frustrated already, now the death of George Floyd has sparked further protest. And even those peaceful protests that at least initially started eventually resulted in and were sabotaged by violent riots. And of course, the finger is being pointed at a number of problematic issues and, and there are all kinds of proposed solutions as to what ought to be done, what, are, what ought to be the next steps. And I'll be honest with you, last weekend was a glorious celebration. I love the fact that we get to send off Jamie and Kim to really just partner with them out at a distance. I love the fact that we get to just celebrate them and just give thanks to God for their faithfulness here at IBC. And as they left, it was like, wow, Lord, thank you for that opportunity. And then I went home and I did the stupidest thing. I turned on my news app. Why? I don't know. 
It's there. I, I review some notifications, and then I get quickly sucked into this, these images. And I start seeing some of just the headlines. I don't even need to see much more than just the headlines to be discouraged. My heart was heavy. And so I went for a bike ride on the adventure trail, and there's a little lookout about three and a half miles in. You see Mount Carey, and you see the Elwall Valley, and there's this little bench. I'm the only one out there. I'm just sitting there, and I'm just praying, and I'm, just, I'm praying for our nation. I'm pray, I prayed for George, George Floyd's family. I prayed for the people who meant to raise their concerns in a peaceful way. I prayed asking God for wisdom and clear thinking on everything that is going on in our lives and in our country and in our world. It's like, God, what is going on? How am I supposed to think about this? How should I view this? What is your perspective on everything? And I believe in that moment, God gave me or reminded me of a number of biblical truths. At first, I was remembering the images and the pickets and the messages and the posters and everything that people are advocating and and arguing for, and then God says, but Aaron, understand these. And I'd like to share them for you right now. Brothers and sisters, it's imperative that at least as followers of Jesus, first and foremost, we must view all of life through a biblical lens. It is imperative that you and I see all of life from a biblical perspective. In other words, we must look to Scripture as our starting point for interpreting social issues. Because if God isn't the most prominent voice in whatever issue is being exasperated, then we open ourselves up to any number of opinions and perspectives and not necessarily God's perspective. So we must view all of life, every detail, through the lens of Scripture. And when we do that, secondly, we understand right from the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and that is this, that every life matters. It's not just black lives that matter. Every life matters to God. Because every life is an image bearer of God. God says this, the triune God says, let us make man in our own image, both male and female. Let us make them in our own image. And so, brothers and sisters, men and women all around the world are image bearers of God. And because of that, they have intrinsic value. God says they have value because they are walking and talking image bearers of their creator. Thirdly, there has always been unrest and evil since the Garden of Eden. Even after everything was reset by a worldwide flood, see how long it took for evil to quickly run rampant when God pressed the reset button on everything it did not take long for evil to reign I've heard it said that in 2016 at least in our nation we went through a series of unfortunate deaths wrongful deaths 
And there was many riots all around our country, and people were asking some very similar questions, like, what is going on? And now four years later, we are standing here, we're standing up again to social injustice. But I believe the irony is that in the past four years, social just injustice never stopped. We live in a world marred by social injustice because sin continues to reign supreme in the hearts of people. And even though maybe in the last four years the same kind of immediate attention didn't take place as far as social injustice issues, the fact is babies continue to get aborted each and every single day. But where's the outcry? Where's the outcry of those being sexually trafficked? Where's the outcry of these unjust habits and patterns that are running rampant all throughout our world? We live in a fallen world. But fourthly, I want to bring attention to this fact that it is right to long for social justice. It is right to desire that all people be treated fairly and undiscriminated against. It is right as citizens of a nation to do your part to encourage governments to establish good laws for the benefit of all people. That is not only our right, but our duty as citizens of a nation. But fifthly, and this qualifies the fourth point, we must understand as Jesus reminds us in this in Matthew chapter 14 that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is not just one option to consider when we consider the social unrest and injustice in our nation. He's not just one avenue to maybe help settle the unrest or, or one solution to these problems. He is our only option. He is our only solution. He is our only hope. So yes, civil reform is important. Yes, it has its place. Yes, effective laws can help with injustice. But in the end, only Jesus can transform one's heart. Only Jesus can transform one's life. And until our hearts are transformed and our minds are renewed by the power of the gospel of Jesus, only then can we expect to experience lasting change and lasting reform and unifying justice. Until Jesus has his rightful place in our hearts and the hearts of people, only then can we expect to experience the justice we so desperately long for. Laws may suppress evil temporarily or to some degree, but it is Jesus that brings unity and peace. So sixth and finally, brothers and sisters, our response as followers of Jesus must be to engage this broken world eagerly. That's part of our mission statement as a church. 
to engage the world eagerly with this gospel truth. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Elsewhere, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 14, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. He doesn't just bring peace. He is our peace by his very presence who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Brothers and sisters, our greatest need in our current social unrest is Jesus And until people have a supernatural, divine encounter with Jesus, until he invades and takes residence in the lives of people, only then can we expect reformation. Only then can we expect transformation. Only then can we expect the social justice that every image bearer of God longs for. And that's why he came. That's why he came, to give us life, to give us, to give us life and the, the, so that we might have it to the full. The first lesson that Jesus wanted to help his disciples understand is that only he was adequate to ultimately meet the needs of people. But the second lesson is important for you and I to understand, and that is this. Jesus desires to use you to meet the needs of others. Jesus desires to use you to minister and meet the needs of others. Even though Jesus knew what he predetermined to do in this miracle account, we see that the disciples got to play a part, right? For example, notice that, the disciples, that Jesus didn't pass out any of the food, but the disciples did. And, and notice that the disciples passed out the bread and the fish, and yet Jesus caused it to continue to multiply. And even though Jesus was the one who made this miracle happen, the disciples became an extension of his mercy and his power and his provision. The question is, is it any different today? I don't believe so. We see in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20, Jesus' final words as recorded by Matthew. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And he says, I'm with you. What that means is, You don't have the authority, but because you have Christ, you have the authority. You don't have the power, but in Christ, you have the power. Because Jesus is with you. And when you are filled with his presence, 
You have the authority from heaven to accomplish all that God calls you to do. We, like the disciples, are called to be distributors of his blessing among all people, recognizing that we ourselves are not the blessing, but we are distributors. We are messengers of his blessing. When I think about how people are introduced to Jesus Christ, you must understand people don't hear about Jesus primarily by coming into a four-walled building. No, they, co- they hear about Jesus because of your faithfulness. They hear about Jesus because you are acting on the Spirit's leading in your life. They hear about Jesus because it's not because they came to a church, it's because the church came to them. It's not because they came to an address, it's because the church, it's because representatives of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, went to all the world declaring the goodness of God as perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. And when we are faithful to deliver God's blessing to others, we can also rest in this, it not only benefits them, but it benefits you. Do you notice, for example, that when the disciples passed out all the provisions, all the food, the the bread and the fish, everybody's stuffed, they gather up all the leftovers, and guess how many baskets are left over? Twelve. One for each disciple. The point is, when we are faithful with what God calls us to do with his resources and from his compassion, then you can expect to be blessed as a result. You know, as a child, I did not recognize it much in the moment, but looking back and having reflected with my parents about a season of life in my family's life, um, I did not realize um, the financial destitute state that we were in. For, for, there was a season I remember that my dad was out of work for six months. And even though as a child I knew we were ridiculously poor and that we couldn't afford to buy anything, I did not realize the significance or the, the, the how poor we were. What I didn't realize is, oh, people brought food to us and put food on our doorstep because we literally did not have any food. And for six months, God brought people into our life until my dad was, dad was finally able to nail down a job. A question we could ask is, who really met the needs of my family? And the answer is God did. And he used people to get it done. And he wants us to get it done. Let me just say this. In a world stricken by fear and anger and unrest and division and hurt and pain and brokenness, and in a nation longing for equality and for fair opportunity and understanding and unity, brothers and sisters, remember, we have a message. We have a person to introduce And that person is Jesus. 
Remember, like the disciples had to learn very clearly, in and of of ourselves, we have nothing to offer. We are not the blessing. We are not the solution. We are not the, the goal. But we do have a Savior. We do have King Jesus who says, I want to be with you. I want to take residence in your life. And because of that promise, because of that reality, we have a message to declare. You see, Jesus is not just one option to consider. He's not just one solution to our needs. He is our only hope. He is our only solution. So may you and I be faithful to the task that we've been commissioned to accomplish. And may we show the world by our words and by our actions the goodness of God.